Pierce County, which is Houston right now, there, there's uh, Crime Stoppers is tracking. They have over 130 people who've been murdered by people who have been released on multiple PR bonds, which is a personal recognition bond, a free bond. So they've just been released from jail on a promise, pinky swear that they'll come back to court. And they've been released so many times that they just have perceived this as a green light. And so they've all committed the ultimate crime. They've murdered somebody. Hello and welcome to The Joe Mobley Show. I'm your host, Joe Mobley, and you're listening to the only place in cyberspace where we talk about being conservative. We hit on current events, the politically correct cancel culture, and problems with civil discourse. But most importantly, we discuss what you can do to come out of the conservative closet. The Joe Mobley Show is a new and exciting podcast that airs weekly on Monday mornings. We have a range of controversial topics on deck. Even so, it's important that we hear from you what matters most. Be sure to send questions, comments, and things you'd like to hear discussed to ask at thejoemobleyshow.com. That's ask at thejoemobleyshow.com. To make sure you stay informed on the latest content, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. Welcome back to The Joe Mobley Show Live. I am Joe Mobley, your host, and I can't thank you enough for joining us on the live show. Uh, Tonight, we've got an awesome episode for you, but if you're new here, thanks for tuning in. We're all about helping you be an uncloseted conservative, which to me means sharing your thoughts, your opinions, and your beliefs, no matter the circumstance or the consequences. Uh, Tonight's guest is a practicing attorney out of Texas. He's going to talk to us about criminal justice reform, bail reform. He's going to talk to us about what's going on in Texas and the broader implications for the rest of the nation. That gentleman is Ken W. Good. Uh, But before that, we're going to cover a little bit of current events. You guys have been messaging and texting me all day. I I read those texts even if I didn't respond to them. So let's get into the show. So it's almost like it goes without saying, uh, but I'm going to say it because, you know, this is the show. Uh, President Biden actually enacted his, or told us about his six-step plan to kind of squash down COVID-19. Here, Taylor, thanks for sharing this, brother. Um, Here's the AP articles reporting on it. Sweeping new vaccine mandates is is what they called it because the mandate portion seems to be uh, what people are really sinking their teeth into. Uh, Here you can see little snippets of Biden's remarks. He says, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost us all. Uh, AP reports that he was all but biting his words off, going on to say that the minority can cause a lot of damage, and they are. Of course, that minority that President Biden is referring to is the minority of Americans that have not gotten the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, of course, we're not going to talk about the efficacy of the vaccine. We're not going to talk about the efficacy of anything related to COVID. Not a doctor. You should consult your doctor if you're thinking about getting the vaccine. Um, You could call me. I think you all know where I stand on that, but I definitely tell you, not a doctor. But what is interesting about President Biden's remarks is, in my view, not an attorney, 
don't play one on TV. But in my view, it seems similar to cases where uh, the courts have already ruled, um, circuit courts, appellate courts, all the way up to schools, they've already ruled that the government cannot do something through private companies. Uh, and as so far as I've seen and read, it seems like the mandate is telling private companies that they need to require their employees to have vaccines by some day in the future. Um, I don't see that being any different than telling a company that they need to require that their employees uh, don't own firearms or that their employees wear purple shirts on every third Tuesday. Uh, and I know that last one's a little facetious, but it seems like the government trying to do things that the government cannot do lawfully through private businesses. Not a lawyer. Don't play one on TV. Uh, this is something that is obviously going to play out in the courts. Uh, and my advice to people, if you don't want to get the vaccine, do not quit your job. A lot of options are removed, taken off the table if you quit your job. If you don't want to get the vaccine and your employer requires it, you make them fire you. There have been videos of nurses and doctors going into work after mandates have occurred at their places of work. Why do I still have this guy up here? Let's uh, let's get back to that. There we go. Uh, there have been videos of doctors, nurses, all sorts of people going into work, and that that interaction is actually really important you make them terminate you. There are a lot of options on the table if you are fired. If you quit, it's kind of like a he said, she said. You can say, well, I quit because of the vaccine mandate, but is that something that you could prove in court should you take legal action? I'm going to go out on a limb and say no. That's not something you could legally prove. There'll, there'll be a big causation problem there. You know, Maybe you were always going to quit. So if that's where you are, and it's a battle for you, stay in the fight. Don't give up. If, if you are giving up and you're going to get the vaccine, that's fine. You're not going to get any you know, shade from me. I am not going to be doing that. And uh, regardless of where I do work, if my employer did something like this, then they would need to fire me. I'm not quitting. I need to be terminated. But that's, that's all that I have on that, guys. Thanks for all of the messages. Thanks for all of the resources, pictures, text, emails. Um, it makes me feel like, oh, people are enjoying the show because they want to hear what I have to say about this. Not a lawyer, not a doctor, just a guy uh, that talks to you on YouTube and now Facebook. I can't believe I'm back on Facebook. But you know who is a lawyer? Ken W. Good. He's our guest. And, you know, not making Ken talk about COVID, but we are going to talk about criminal justice reform. So, Ken, how are you doing? Good, sir. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on your show. It's been a lot of fun so far just talking to you as we were getting yeah <laughs> yeah I've, I've had a good time as well in, in the green room just like real green rooms they're not green you know <laughs> it's, it's red or white or whatever uh so ken tell us about you what you're doing in the state of texas and and why you're speaking out about what's going on in the bail bondsman world with with the law there and with criminal justice reform more broadly well, as you've mentioned, I'm an attorney. I've been an attorney for almost 30 years. Uh, I specialize in the area of bail law, uh, uh, bail bond law, or regulatory uh, statutes re regarding bail. Um, uh, I've been doing that for probably 20 years of, of the 30 years I've been an attorney. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is, you know, something that we've had to, as an industry to become experts about, and that is the laws that impact us. 
because of, you know, it seems like it's become very political. And so we have reforms that we don't really agree on. We can't agree as whether they're working or not because we uh, have different political perspective, uh, perspectives that are brought into the debate. And so we've had to become experts on what works and what doesn't work. And we've had to show that to politicians as we've gone around like in Texas because our, our friends on the other side just will not agree that their reforms that they get, that they try out are not working, even if they're not working. Like in Harris County, they'll acknowledge that the crime is going up, but they, but they won't uh, admit that it's because of bail reform. And so it's been something that we've been uh, had to become experts on, and we have been working very hard to do it. And, and really, the reality is anything that helps the criminal justice system is going to help, uh, is going to also be good for the bail industry, because we're a, a, an essential part of the criminal justice system, whether people realize it or not. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, we talked about this a little bit uh, off air, uh, but the, the criminal justice apparatus is huge. And there are attorneys on both sides, the prosecutors and defense attorneys, uh, law enforcement officers, and all types of NGOs, intelligence gathering people. But a huge part of the problem is public awareness and public education. So in your view, what is it that the public is just missing, completely unaware of when it comes to why this is important, what's going on in, in the bail bonds world and how that manifests in society? Uh, because we, we know that it does, but I, I think a lot of people don't see the connection there. Well, we see these put, this push across the country for criminal justice reform. It started out as bail bond reform. And the, the debate started out with, well, bail bonds are, are unconstitutional. They're going to be held unconstitutional. That's not true. They were actually held to be constitutional. And But then we, we what the focus initially was, we're taking advantage of the poor. And so we had all these push uh, pushes for changes to protect the poor. But what happened was, the changes made went to the far extreme and made it where we're really tying the hands of judges so they can't do anything, even, even if it's a career criminal. So you've got a situation where if they claim they're poor or we're setting up a system where the judges have no option, they have to release people, even if they're career criminals and they get rearrested multiple times. We have the example of the gentleman in New York who was arrested over 80 times on misdemeanor charges. And, you know, he's coming out of jail for the 80-something time, and he's like, bail reform is great because the judge's hands are tied. They can't keep him. And so what we're seeing with what I call bad bail reform is we have no gatekeepers. Judge's hands are tied, and career criminals are taking advantage of the system, and that's the reason why you see crime increasing across the country where their bad bail reform has been enacted. And bad bail reform just means the judge's hands have been tied and so that's giving a green light to the criminals to take advantage of the system. And that's what the public needs to be, be very careful about. We want to protect the poor, but we don't want to tie the hands of the judges so that criminals can take advantage of the system. So with rises in crime, are we talking like larceny and theft, or are we talking uh, violent crime, a mixture of the two? What are, what are you seeing? Is it different in Texas? Are there some trends? Well, like in, uh, in Harris County, which is Houston right now, there, there's uh, Crime Stoppers is tracking. They have over 130 people who've been murdered by people who have been released on multiple PR bonds, which is a personal wow. recovery. 
bond, a free bond. So they've just been released from jail on a promise, pinky swear, that they'll come back to court. And they've been released so many times that they just have perceived this as a green light. And so they've all committed the ultimate crime. They've murdered somebody. I think it's across the spectrum. Um, uh, the Harris County DA just issued a report last Thursday saying recidivism, even in misdemeanors, is up greatly. And so crime is increasing significantly. And and they're disagreeing with, you know, the other elected officials who are kind of like ostriches putting their hands in the sand and saying, oh, crime's up, but it's not because of bail reform. Yes, it absolutely is. When you have a Democrat DA saying it, the Crime is increasing, it's increasing across the spectrum, and it's because of bail reform. And I'd say bad bail reform. So in in the 80s and 90s, there was, uh, we, we've seen pushes every decade. We've seen pushes to fight domestic violence. And then uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, there was a huge push to fight um, DUI or DUI reform, if you will, uh, I, we, we spoke about off air and some of my listeners know I, I worked on the human trafficking task force for almost a decade. And a huge part of the push was there, there does need to be regulatory or legislative reform in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, um, which, which came to the table very late, 2012, 2013. But the other piece, the thing that undergirds it is there needs to be a public awareness campaign. There needs to be some pressure. Uh, we saw with domestic violence, we saw with uh, drinking and driving, we're seeing kind of now with human trafficking, there needs to be a public outcry that this is important. Is the same thing applicable to you? Because before we got in touch, I this wasn't on my radar and I'm someone, I think I'm paying attention. Um, so do we, do we need kind of a, a public outcry or public awareness campaign about how these bail reforms and these criminal justice reforms are manifesting, and probably if there can be some research done, uh, how that connects to rises in crime. I, I think we're both on the same page that there's a definite relationship there. Well, I think before the pandemic, I would have agreed that we needed a public relations campaign and we needed a public awareness. But I think uh, since the pandemic, we've really seen uh, examples of bad bail reform on steroids because uh, people were not uh, being placed in jail because of the pandemic and the risk of them getting uh, COVID in jail. So we kind of saw a big move towards that. But also uh, we saw New York enact uh, simple release, which is, you know, the answer for the big, uh, heavily populated urban areas. How do we process large numbers of people through the jail quickly and efficiently? And so their response is, well, we'll just simply release everybody. And so they, New York tried that devastating results. And even in heavily Democrat uh, New York, they recognized during COVID that it was because of the reforms and the uh, criminal justice reform, the bail reform that they enacted. So even during the pandemic, they repealed many of the reforms. They still have more to repeal. And so I think that now you're seeing uh, law enforcement come out across the country where reforms have been enacted or bad bail reforms where judges' hands have been tied. And you see them coming out saying, the increases in crime that we're seeing is because of bail reform. And you see that now in uh, uh, LA, in California, you see that in, still in New York, you see it in Harris County. And so I would say you see it across the country where they enact reform. And in states where they were early participants in the reform, New York, I mean, I'm sorry, I've mentioned them, but uh, Alaska, they also 
did, got terrible results and they repealed much of the reform that they enacted. So you have legislatures at this point going back and reevaluating what, what they did and repealing large parts of it. And then probably the biggest impact we've seen is like in Texas, where we just had, a uh, we've been fighting for bail reform for six years and we just had something passed in the last two weeks. And I would consider it a good bail reform because it's the opposite of what we've seen. It's not tying the hands of the judges, it's giving them more tools and it also has a big accountability element. So, great, we're going to give you a chance, but if you screw up, you're going to be held accountable. That's that's huge. I think a lot of policymakers have been unaccountable for decades. Since before I was born, not going to call anyone out by name right now. There's You can almost pick one out of a hat. Uh, but, yeah, it's important to measure the outcomes of the policy and it's good. I'm glad that Alaska undid what they did. Um, I'm, I'm looking at this list, and and I was just going to ask, Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, Orlando, Indianapolis, huge increases in crime. Um, you know, your, your people have sent over that the FBI data says that there are increases in homicide uh, up by 25% uh, 2019 into 2020. Um which I, I've looked at the uniform crime reports for the FBI to look at their trafficking statistics, but I've never seen a jump like this. How significant is an increase of 25% in homicides and other violent crimes? Well, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's something that we would have not thought of. I mean, crime has been decreasing and now suddenly not just to be increasing, but going up steeply. That's, I mean, and it's in places that enacted what I would call bad bail reform. And so for people to look at you and go, oh, crime's increasing, but we don't know why. I mean, and you then you have uh, DAs elected, like, you know, a good example would be the one in L.A. where, you know, you don't have anybody in the courtroom fighting for the victim because the, the DA's office in L.A. has come out and said, we have a, a different opinion over who the victim is. So they think the criminal defendant is the real victim, not the victim who was robbed, the victim who was assaulted. Uh, and so there's the result of that is there's nobody in the courtroom arguing for the person who was the victim of the crime. And that's causing real problems. And let me tell you why. You start out with just little minor crimes, your misdemeanors, but you start getting this green light from the system. You're not going to be held accountable. So, hey, I'll just keep committing crimes. And and over time, they get more and more brazen, and they and at some point they're going to commit a worse crime. It may even be the ultimate crime of murder, and then they they're at the point where really no return. And we've now created a system where we can't put someone back on track, or it's very difficult to get someone back on track when they commit a misdemeanor because we've tied the hands of the judges in so many places. And so we've now made it where we're telling them go ahead. But when you cross the line, they don't realize they've crossed the line. And now we've we've made it a worse situation for them. And the punishment they're looking at is going to be much more severe. And that's really the, the, the very the big tragedy. That's the system that we're creating in many of our jurisdictions across the country. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Um, so two things. Uh, thing one, I completely forgot that you guys can write in questions and Ken or myself will answer them towards the end of the interview. Uh, the second thing is 
you've watched this long, you like the conversation. So go ahead and like wherever you're watching on YouTube, on Facebook. Like, if you're not subscribed, then subscribe to the show and leave a comment. You guys wouldn't believe how much that supports the channel, uh, how much it supports me. And can't thank you enough for watching. Back to Ken. Um, you know, some things are, there's a political divide and some things there aren't. And I just see this as one of those issues. I'm, I'm originally from Long Island. Most, most of my family, you know, are, are blue card holders firmly. And like them, a lot of society can't see the connection, the correlation between, uh, in this instance, I wouldn't even say leftist policies, but more broadly democratic, or, you know, Democrat liberal policies. Um, criminal justice reform is good. Analyzing why there is a, a so-called prison to or school to prison pipeline, those initiatives are good. But the outcome actually matters. And you mentioned, I, I don't know if I told you, I live in Loudoun County. Um, Loudoun, Fairfax, Arlington, we've got some of the worst. We have Commonwealth's attorneys here in Virginia. Um, but we have some of the worst ones in the nation. I don't know how they stay out of the news as much as they do. Uh, not Los Angeles County bad. We don't have people stealing $900 worth of merchandise from Dillard's and then Sears and then wherever else. Um, but we've experienced exactly what you described, where not only was there no defense, but in my view, an incompetent defense, we've, we've had instances where Commonwealth's attorneys will get up and say, I agree with everything the defense just said. And they're supposed to be representing the interests of the people. Again, not a lawyer. I don't know how the, the case that I'm thinking of is civil, not criminal. Is that not the, the picture of an incompetent defense? Is, isn't that something that's constitutionally protected the the idea that good bad you know whatever whomever has done a competent defense is going to be given in the courtroom is, is that part of the issue here is that a factor uh you know what i i don't know if i think that that's a factor about providing a competent defense because I agree with you. I think in in a lot of our areas, we've we've got two defense attorneys in the courtroom now. And we don't have a prosecutor, and so I, I think we've just the the pendulum has swung in the completely opposite direction. You know, we we've been strongly law enforcement for so long, and now the pendulum has swung, and I think it's 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 now starting to swing back uh, more into a common sense area, I, and. You know this this concept of you can rob up to nine hundred dollars and and not be prosecuted. Not, I mean that's the perfect example. I mean in theory, it sounds great. We don't want poor people who are having to steal to provide for their needs. But the but the idea behind that is they get arrested. We don't charge them. We show them where they need to go so they don't have to rob in the future. But then what happens in reality? In reality, organized crime gets involved. They recruit people. Your job is to go rob up to this amount of money in these installments every day and bring them to us. We'll sell it on the black market and they can't be prosecuted. So that's the best example of where a, a good faith reform tied the hands of the judges and now the organized crime is just taking advantage of it and running with it. So now at the point when you go to Walmart in California, 
first of all, they don't have any employees because of, of the minimum wage, but everything is behind lock and key, and you have to wait forever for somebody to come out to unlock it so you can get it. I mean, it's it's like you're visiting a fortress just to go buy, uh, you know, a power cord for your computer. It's it's crazy, and that's kind of the uh, the example of what we're seeing. And I think that you're, you know, the the what you mentioned about DAs is we have some groups coming in and poaching our elections and recruiting people to run. And, you know, like in Texas, we had some people recruit people. And like, I think the Dallas County DA was an example uh, that they had to be, take certain positions on crime if they got elected and they did get elected. And so suddenly they start saying, well, we're not going to prosecute certain crimes. We're going to mirror some of the policies in California. And uh, I think that's so bad for the criminal justice system. I mean, the public does not have faith in the system. If you go to Dallas County, you do something, you will not be prosecuted. But you go to Tarrant County right next door, and you'll be prosecuted and having a criminal record for the rest of your life. How does the public have faith in the criminal justice system when we have those contradictions across the state? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Wow, that's that's incredible. So we've talked about a lot of the issue. Um, I think a lot of viewers... One, they're just hearing about this, uh, and they're probably thinking as they're processing what you're saying, what the heck do we do about it? You know, who who do we complain to? Who do we write letters to? Um, what, if anything, can be done about this? Because this sounds like a ship that needs to be turned around immediately. It doesn't. Uh, you you spoke about recidivism. Uh, you spoke about crazily high uh, increases in crime rates. This isn't something that we can just kick the can down, maybe wait until the next election cycle. Um, what, what can be done? And give us the stages. What can be done now in near term and what can be done uh, in, in the kind of medium term, you know, two to five year time frame? Well, you know, let's talk about how deep this problem is. You know, like in our urban areas, we have schools that have failed. We have families that have, the family unit has failed. We have drugs that are just running rampant. And we have no opportunities for jobs in the big urban areas or many fewer opportunities for jobs. And so then we have the protest, if you want to say it nicely, you can say the riots from last summer that destroyed even more businesses. So there's even fewer opportunities for jobs in the inner cities. And so now we're throwing in, well, we're going to do reform in the criminal justice system where we're just going to give up there as well. We're just going to give everybody a pass. And, you know, a lot of times the criminal justice system is the last opportunity to get people back on track. And so, you know, what can we do? First, we have to have a strong sense of accountability. We want to give everybody a second chance. But do we want to give everybody an eighth chance, ninth chance, tenth chance? I mean, we've got examples where People were let out of jail once, didn't show up. We call that a failure to appear. They were no no uh, accountability, just released again. And they're, they've, they're up to the point where they're seven, eight, nine times, ten times where they failed to appear. And the judge just keeps letting them out with a new bond, a PR bond, a free bond. Doesn't cost them anything. And so they don't ever realize, you know, why do I have to come to court? Why should I come to court if I'm not going to be held accountable? And so... What we don't, what the public doesn't realize is anytime you don't show up for court, your criminal case has to be put on hold. It has to be put on hold until you come back. And that can be a couple of hours, a couple of days. It can be months. It can be until you cr commit another criminal offense that brings you back into the system. So we have to have judges that hold you to accountability. 
And that's the first thing. I mean, if our judges will just hold you to account for your actions. I mean, we want everybody to have, you know, a second chance. But, I mean, fifth, tenth, uh, 20th chance. Uh, so I think that's the first part. I think training for judges. I mean, we just went through bail reform in Texas. We passed what I consider to be good bail reform. And the number one thing that's important in our bill, and you, it just makes common sense to the public, is you got to review criminal histories before you set bail. And, you know, a lot of people say, why aren't we doing it now? Because well, we didn't have the technology to allow it. Part of the bill is to set it up so that we do. If it wasn't if in the past, if the criminal history wasn't in that county, a lot of times they didn't know it when they were setting bail. Now we have a statute requiring a magistrate to review the criminal history before setting bail. That's going to enable the judge to have a great gatekeeper function. Hey, you have a substantial criminal history. What's, you know, you, we need to have a closer look on you uh, versus someone never been arrested before, first-time offense, a minor crime. Well, shoot, you need to go home. But we get all these criticisms that poor people are sitting in jail. That's not true anymore. That's a talking point from our friends on the other side. Uh, Harris County DA said with COVID, their jail is completely full, but it's completely full of dangerous people who do not need to be released back into the public. And the problem is we still have more people that need to go into jail if we're going to have an accountability uh, element to our criminal justice reform. And so it's going to get worse before it's going to get better because people have to realize, hey, I, if I don't do this, I'm going to be held accountable and we're going to have to hold them accountable before people start realizing, okay, I need to do this. Man, so, so many things. I don't even know which direction to tackle first. I, I think the government does, just like you said, the government has a responsibility to keep citizens safe. And it makes no sense to let out a violent criminal, to let them out of jail, let them out of prison, let them out of wherever they're incarcerated because of COVID. And I, I know COVID's dangerous. Well, we'll see that COVID's dangerous, but so are these criminals. And we're not, we're not talking about, you know, someone that did a joyride or someone that is a, you know, hit pocket or whatever, but we're talking about violent criminals. They, they shouldn't be let out of jail because there's a virus. You know, there's always flu. There's always some sickness going around. The, this isn't the world's first rodeo with illness. So that, that's not a justification to get rid of uh, incarceration. Uh, it's, it, I just think it's nuts. But the other thing that was shocking to me, um, and you said it a while back and you said it again, just the idea that judges' hands can be tied. You mentioned training for judges. What what kinds of things can judges do, either either from the bench or maybe in their professional organizations? I don't know if judges have lobbying interest. Uh, I'm just ignorant there. Uh, but what's what's the guidance there? Well, and this is such a political issue. We do not have agreement. I mean, you know, attorneys, I mean, I think we have an ethical responsibility to agree on what the law is. Now, we can argue the facts and we can say, oh, well, this case should be distinguished because of this reason. But we have an ethical responsibility to at least agree on what the law is. Well, this is an area where we won't agree. I mean, and it's ridiculous that we won't agree. And the best example is our friends on the left say, well, Bell's been held unconstitutional. Well, that's, that's not true. Bell has been held constitutional. They're actually misrepresenting it because some, uh, like the Fifth Circuit ruled that Harris County's 
bail system, because it didn't provide certain procedures, violated procedural due process, which is something completely different than substantive due process. Substantive is whether it's constitutional. Procedures is whether you have sufficient procedures in place. So the court ruled they didn't have sufficient procedures, so it violated procedural due process. So that is technically, they found it unconstitutional. But it's a lie to say it's substantively unconstitutional because we've had two courts, including the Fifth Circuit, to say that bail is substantively constitutional. And so we have, I mean, I've had a judge tell me, well, bail's been held unconstitutional. Bail schedules have been held unconstitutional. And I'm like, no, they haven't. And, you know, we were talking in the green room about, you know, we're we're bondsmen or I'm a bondsman's attorney. So sometimes we have less credibility. And when I'm looking at a judge and saying, judge, you're wrong, uh, you know, he's like, you're just a bail bond lawyer. What do, you, what do you know? What do you know? Well, no, this is an area of the law that we've become very sophisticated experts. And when we say that bail's been held, unconst- been held constitutional, we can cite to you both the cases that have done it. And we can even tell you where they're misrepresenting the law. But the problem is you've got judges, we've got to make these changes. We've got to spend these tens of thousands, these hundreds of thousands. Harris County spent $100 million to make changes they never needed to make. And they're, they're saying, well, we have to. We have to because bail's been held unconstitutional. So the problem we have is we can't even agree on what the law is. We can't, and, and the, even among lawyers, there's misrepresentations because it's become that political. And until we get to the point where we can at least agree on a basic concept, hey, let's look at this and see if it worked. You know, um, the, what we just did in text is a good example. Our friends on the left will say, that's an example of bad bail reform. And we're like, this is great bail reform. It has accountability. And we will say that everything that's in New York is, and what they attempted in California is examples of bad bail reform. And they'll, oh, are you crazy? And the reason why is because they have a difference of opinion of who the real victim is. They're looking after the criminal. The criminal needs extra protection. So we need to tie the hands of the judges so they can't keep poor people in jail. We're not keeping poor people in jail. If you've got a criminal history, your ability to pay is no longer relevant. Your risk to society should be the number one factor. And we have cases that say that, uh, or, or say that if they're individually magistrate and bail is set at a point where they can't afford it, that is fine. But then we have people saying, well, ability to pay, you can't judge set a bond higher than their ability to pay. And we've got judges who think that across the country, and that's not the law. And people that's, will say, I'm absolutely lying right now for saying this. I can't write, wrap my mind around that because it's not, people say it's because of race, it's because of age, it's because of class, it's because of where uh, the, the defendant lives or brought up where they're from, whatever. And as far as I understand it, and you'll definitely correct me if I'm wrong, the only the only factors in determining how the bail is set is the egregiousness of the crime. You know, is this is this a manslaughter or is this a serial killer and criminal history? And isn't that the same among all ages and all demographics and all races? Well, in Texas, we have 1715 of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure, which sets out five or six factors that the judge is supposed to review in setting bail. One of them is the seriousness of the crime. We're just added criminal history that goes into effect January 1. But ability to pay is one of the factors. But, you know, as the Fifth Circuit said, it's not the only factor. And where our bail bail reform is tying the hands of the judges, they're making that the only factor. Like in California, they got a bill pending right now where they're saying 
uh, if they say they can't afford a bond, uh, then you can't, you have to release them without a bond. That's crazy. If you do that across the board, you're doing that for poor people, you're doing it for non-poor people, you're doing it for career criminals. And that's the problem. You're now allowing the criminals, or I would say the chickens, to run the chicken coop. So I, I want to shift back to the increase in crime for a second. So there, it seems that they're lobbying interest here. Some people are blaming it on COVID and the pandemic, which if that were the case, we'd, we'd see increase in crime uh, nationally, not just in a particular state or nation. Uh, but we're blaming so many different things. We're blaming uh, COVID. We're blaming defund the police movements. We're blaming criminal justice reforms or bail reforms and, you know, all of these different types of terms. In, in your view, what's the real culprit? You know, why why is this happening? Is it a combination of all three or four elements? Um, or are some of these things red herrings and there's really kind of a singular thing going on? Well, I think that, uh, I think that the major cause of this increases in crime is that they're in our urban areas. Uh, and this is not, I don't believe that, you know, I think the misrepresentation that this is a racial issue, it's an urban area issue where you have high population and how do you process those people quickly and efficiently through the, through the jail? And that's what people, the, the urban areas are struggling with. And I think we're creating chaos because we can't figure out a way to efficiently and economically process people through the jail. Historically, we've used bail schedules. People who can divert away because they can afford it do that, and then the system is left with who, can, who can't afford it, and they can concentrate on them. Well, the, the litigation said, oh, well, we don't like bail schedules, so we, well, we got to figure out something else. So that's how Harris County, uh, New York, and then uh, California tried, well, we'll just simple release everybody. Well, if you're just simply releasing, like in uh, Harris County, you don't even see a magistrate for certain crimes. You just released on a PR bond for $100. There's no gatekeeper. There's nobody looking, hey, you've got a substantial criminal history. Uh, if I release you, you're just going to go commit another crime. You're a career criminal. I'm not doing that. There is no gatekeeper. And so I think you, what you're seeing across the country is an inability to address the central issue, how do we press this large numbers of people through the jail costly and efficiently, cost effectively and efficiently. It's not being done. It's not being done anywhere because what we've historically done is the bail schedule and suddenly these big urban areas have decided they don't like that because of this litigation. Even though litigation has said they're constitutional, they can be used as long as you have procedural safeguards. And that's what the Texas statute, our bill just did. It enacted or authorized bail schedules and set out the procedure set out by the Fifth Circuit so that we are guaranteed that are ensuring that we're constitutional. But you'll have people say, oh, we can't. You follow that. That bill is unconstitutional because it allows bail schedules and the Fifth Circuit held bail schedules are unconstitutional. That's absolutely a lie. But there would be people that would write into this show saying Ken Good's a liar for saying that. That's where we are. Well, they probably will. And that email is not ask at com. That's like, you know, no reply at Google or something. Uh, that's where you email those questions. So, you know, I've, this is the juicy question that people want to know. Uh, 
because these these things are politically divisive. They are. We can't pretend that they're not. I don't know if you even have a reason, but what possible reason? This might be pure conjecture. Well, why do they do this? What can we possibly hope to gain from allowing career criminals to continue their profession? You know, that that's why we're seeing people with 30, 40, upwards of 80 charges when they finally, you know, commit a, what we call a serious crime and, and go to prison. What are the policymakers thinking? What are they trying to accomplish what are they trying to do to these these major cities? This is a question that I have thought about long and hard, and I do have a theory. And my theory is, you know, we've every national election, six months before the election, there is some big scandal. We have protests. And I believe that, you know, originally it was started as a way to increase certain segments of the population to come out and vote because people come out when they're angry. But the problem was, we had politicians making promises and making promises of certain things. And then when the election was over, they didn't do it because it was just to get people out to vote. Well, their supporters listened and they got, they created a mob and now they've lost control of the mob. And the mob is now electing people who are not only making the promises, who are following through on the promises, even if they make no sense. Because these people can't defend their arguments because they got elected making the same promises all the other politicians made for many years. They're just now acting on them and seeing the terrible consequences of them. And they're like, hmm, they can't defend it. And if you even try to debate them, suddenly you're a racist because you, they can't defend their arguments. So they just have to attack you and they attack you personally. I've been you know, in a room where I've tried to make uh, an impassioned, strong, just analytical argument of what's going on. And their response was, he's wrong. He's an idiot. Why are you listening to him? I mean, how can you debate with people like that? I mean, I'll debate anybody on an analytical level. I'll def I'll bring the numbers. I'll bring the facts. I'll defend my position. But if all you're going to do is stand up and say I'm stupid, that's kind of like we're going back to third grade playground. You know, you're dumb. You're stupid. Well, we would have thought as teachers that those were our unacceptable arguments. But today, that's the arguments that we're hearing across the political spectrum on this issue. We don't have a debate. We don't talk about it. We don't look at it. It's just if you disagree with one perspective, you're dumb, you're racist, and you need to be ignored. It's so interesting. My viewers know I, I, I don't try and hide it. We're, I'm a Christian. We're a Christian family. And I'm never going to come out and say that things like grace or mercy are useless. Obviously, we all need it, and, and we do believe in second chances, but we can't – we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we're saying that justice will never be done. We're just doing away with the justice, with the criminal justice apparatus, uh, with – Prisons, And we see these crazy flip-flops, like the vice president spends her entire adult life and career sending people away, yeah. I think, for decent crimes. Uh, maybe not. The, the, the war on drugs was a tremendous failure. I, I'm just ready for that to be over. Uh, now it's completely flip-flopped to, you know, praising, you know, St. George Floyd. Um, 
the the end of the argument, it sounds like the other side is making. It sounds like the logical end of that is we should do away with prisons. There should not be a criminal justice apparatus. If we do away with prisons, then we shouldn't have cops. All they do is mm-hmm. write write tickets or do health and welfare. Ch- I don't know what they would do. You know, I don't know. You know, they wouldn't have statutory power of arrest. There'd be nowhere to take people to. And I don't understand, you know, you're having these conversations more than I am and more than the viewers are. I don't understand how they don't see where that logic train goes to. Have have you had any success getting people, getting the light bulb to go off? Do you do you have any winning arguments? Well, I think we do have I think we do have some success. I think we all agree that we don't want murderers out on the street. But where we have problems are is we they want rules that they believe are required to protect the poor. And if you look at people in prison, you know, a lot there's a disproportionate. I mean, people in prison don't have jobs, so they're poor. And so, uh, you know, the, the group that are pushing for criminal justice reform is not all one idea. It's a coalition. And some of them are very well-meaning people who just think if you're poor, you should not be prosecuted for a crime. If you stole something because you're poor and you have a family to support, that you should not be prosecuted for that. And then there's another segment, a small segment, that I think wants chaos. And so I think they're right now they're all grouped together. And I think in our big urban areas, they're winning the day on arguments, but they're hurting hurting their citizens. I mean, you know, the... Who does this hurt the most? In our inner cities, it's hurting our black population disproportionately than anyone else. And that's being not reported because this is minority on minority crime in our in our urban areas. And that's the fundamental uh, thing that is just getting ignored. You know, we're now living in an area or time when bad things that don't support your position don't get reported by your allies in the press. And so... We can't have an honest debate. Uh, so I, I think, look, the way we win the fight is one person at a time. And, you know, I'm more than willing to talk like I am with you. I'll, I'll meet with anybody. And in fact, I encourage, you know, let's have a debate. Let's get somebody from the other side. Let's make them defend their position. But the problem is they can't, in my opinion. And so they refuse to debate us. So we have to win this fight one heart and soul at a time. Absolutely agree. We want to give everybody a second chance. We believe in redemption. But, you know, we also look at the Bible. The Bible says we're all sinners until we're saved by grace. And so if you even listen to the Bible, we all have an evil side. And so sometimes the evil side controls. And if the evil side takes over, then we need to be given to Caesar what Caesar and be punished for that. Um, now, what I would like to see in, on our criminal justice reform is instead of just giving across the board, release people from prison, I think we should have individual re- reviews. And for the people who have shown remorse and have, have done whatever we determine, uh, documents and demonstrates that remorse, then I think we should show mercy to those people. Uh, that's what we're failing. That's where we're screwing up. We're just doing across the board, just like we're doing simple release for people. We're we're doing across the board release uh, in, in federal prison, and it's just been a complete failure. And we've got to stop it. Awesome. Well, 
we're going to do a couple of commercials and, and Ken, you're, you're going to go first with, uh, with the commercial for the professional bondsman of Texas. Uh, but before that, I I'm looking through the chat. I don't see any questions guys. You got a couple of minutes for questions. I'm going to ask Ken one or two, uh, last questions here after we do these, uh, shameless plugs for ourselves. Um, but anyway, if your questions come in, then, then I'll ask them and Ken will answer them. And if they don't, then we will finish the sucker off. But Ken, tell us a little bit about what's going on with the professional bondsmen of Texas. I think I can get it up on the screen here. Oh, oh. Well, if you want more information uh, and you would like to delve into these issues a lot more, you can go to the Professional Bondsman of Texas website, which is ptx.com. Uh, it, it has an abundance of information. Uh, we have a uh, elected officials uh, corner where you can go in and see all kinds of papers that we've drafted and our links to stories and videos. Uh, and you all, we have a blog where we're uh, pulling together the important stories in the uh, criminal justice uh, reform movement, and we're we're highlighting them there, and both good and as we're responding to what we think is uh, going in the wrong direction. So I would encourage you to, uh, if you would like more information, to go to pp pbtx.com, the Professional Bondsman of Texas, and um, join us. Join us in educating your officials and your uh, elected representatives and to tell them we want good criminal justice reform, good uh, common sense bail reform, and not this uh, bad bail reform that ties the hands of the judges and uh, allows career criminals to take advantage of the criminal justice system. I'm huge now, okay. Awesome, and it's, it's time for my commercial. This thing is like making me dizzy, I need it to go away. All right, there we go. Uh, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe. Awesome. So the sponsor of this episode, if the computer is going to catch up here, I think it is. I think it is. The sponsor of this episode is worthy of our praise, guys. One, my my wife and I wrote this, so obviously, you know, they're, they're, we have a vested interest. But this is an excellent tool. It's a manual on giving God our best through worship. And I know... You know, this show, we do convincing arguments. We we talk about fallacies. We talk about uh, things from different angles. And I know one person that a lot of us try to convince of things are our worship pastors. I don't care what they call them at your church. Worship arts, worship minister, minister of music, whatever. It's, it's all the same job. The biblical guidance is all the same. Uh, this is an easy read. It's like 15 or 16 pages. Um, you can get it on Amazon, but here's the deal. You can get it for 10 bucks. You can, you can get it for free if you've got uh, whatever it's called, Kindle Unlimited. Uh, but here's the deal. I want churches to have this because, you know, I, I believe that I believe that we're supposed to be pursuing excellence in whatever our purpose is. And for the people who are staff at the church, you know, they have some kind of calling. And I think these worship ministers have a calling. And I think this is a tool that will help them lead and steward over their ministry better, identify the unique vision that the ministry has. So if you want to get this for your uh your worship pastor, then email ask at djomoblishow.com and we are just going to give them a digital copy. If they want a print copy, they've got to pay for it. Uh, but we are just going to send them a digital copy of this because I want it 
to have the impact that uh, we know that it can have. We've used it at other churches. So again, the sponsor of this episode is worthy of our praise, Emmanuel, on giving God our best through worship. And obviously, you know, we're, we're honest about the, uh, it's not even an affiliate link. I, I get all the money if you if you buy it. Now, that's not true. Amazon gets whatever they take. They don't take as much as Google or PayPal. Uh, all right, let me check to see if there are any write-in questions. I don't think that there, there are. Uh, Michelle, thank you, Michelle. Michelle says, good job. Uh, last night. Last night, I got to speak at an event uh, with Glenn Youngkin, who's going to be the next governor of Virginia. That That's the guy. Uh, but Dr. Ben Carson was there. Uh, Candy Carson, his wife, was there. And I was that guy. I showed up with books. I did. Uh, and got a couple of autographs. But uh, Dr. Ben, Dr. Carson, he, he gave a great speech, um, as he always does, and one, actually, going back to the beginning, we opened the show talking about the, the COVID mandates, the, the Biden White House mandates. And here's the deal. We'll, we'll just circle back, as it were, to the very beginning. The idea of mandates is a little un-American, guys. I'm just going to say it. The idea, the government's not our parents. You know, I tell my kids, clean the room, take out the trash, clear the table, put the dishes away, Whatever. You know, that's how mandates are supposed to work. The government's not supposed to be giving us mandates. That's just not a lawyer, not a doctor, just a Joe Mobley. I've read the Constitution once or twice or several dozen times. So this idea of mandates, I'm just, I'm sorry. If If you're still living your life in that area... And sorry, Ken, I could have taken you off the screen, but we're, we're, we're too far into it now. You're just there. But if you're still... I was just going to comment, during, even during Trump's presidency, we would, have take, we would have thought a declaration of emergency would have been needed to be able to do something like that. And that's what Trump did. Here we are. How many, just short time later, and we're now just doing it... It's, it's three years to flatten the curve. Emergency at all. Like, we don't have... We just have that power. You're going to see that not last very long in the courts, I, I believe. Well, guys, if you look at military as any indicator, the authorization of use of deadly force or military force, uh, AUMF, military force, authorized use of military force, they signed that sucker in 2003, and we're still doing drone strikes and all that stuff, you know, until like last week. So that's what happens when, anyway, I'll get off that horse. It's a whole tangent. Follow the mandates if you want. I don't care. I live my life. I, I don't wear masks. I don't. It's, it's not because I'm a super spreader or whatever. Uh, I just, I kind of feel like an adult, kind of feel like I can do whatever I'd like to do with, within the law. And mandates aren't law. You know, if they write these things in the law, which would be insane, but if they write these things in the law, then, then great. Then I'd, I'd be that person that would move. I, I'm not going to do the whole face diaper business, but... <laughs> Oh, man, Beth Bartz. Don't get me started on Beth Bartz, Michelle. Thank you all for listening. Ken, you're going to get the last word, and and here's the last question. You can't choose the Bible. Christians pick the Bible. Muslims pick the Quran. Mormons pick the Book of Mormon. If you could get everyone on earth to read and understand one book, what would you pick and why? And, and you get the last word, good sir. Oh, my gosh. That's a really good question. Oh. Uh, 
You know what? I'm going to be probably silly. Probably one of the most popular books ever that's been sold is an Agatha Christie murder mystery, and then there were none. It's out. Uh, it's only outsold by the Bible and Shakespeare's works, and it's a murder mystery where ten people go to an island, and at the end, everybody's dead, and you're trying to figure out who uh, committed the murder, and and it's. Uh, her best book. I, I think the lesson from there is, you know, we all live in fear and we all have to get along. And if we can't get along and we're just going to fight for power and we're going to fight each other, then that's chaos. And then we don't have a country. Uh, if we're not a country of laws, then we're not a country. And if we get to the point where we think, well, we shouldn't enforce the laws, we shouldn't have any prisons, then we're really just giving our, our organized crime a green light to take over the country. And that's what will happen. And so when our friends on the other side are saying we need to do these things for the poor, our response is, and it should always be, well, what are the safeguards that we're also putting in place to ensure that we're not allowing career criminals to take advantage of the criminal justice system? And if they can't answer that question, then we can't go forward with those reforms. And that's where we are when they're enacting bad bail reform. They're tying the hands of the judges without any safeguards to the public. And that's why we're seeing increases in crime and public safety is, is being substantially downgraded and at risk. And so we have to give judges the tools to hold people accountable. And until we do that, you know, we're going to be our own little book of then there was none. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Awesome. Ken, thanks so much for joining the show. And, and you are a consummate professional. You answered my question well, and you also answered the, the, the question that you wanted asked for the end. And that's how you answer questions, guys. I, I'm learning a ton about interviewing from my guests. Uh, so that was awesome. Ken W. Good, his website again is, uh-oh, lost the button. There it is. Uh, Professional Bondsman of Texas. Guys, check it out. If you're an attorney in Texas, then definitely check this out. P-B-T-X. That's Papa Bravo Tango X-Ray.com for you military uh, folks out there. Guys, if you're watching to this point, you'll like the show. So go ahead and make it formal. Like, share, and subscribe. YouTube likes it when you say smash the, the like button. Facebook likes it when you say whatever. I don't know. Thumbs up. Uh, but like, share, and subscribe. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast because there is content that never makes it on the YouTube for obvious reasons. Uh, that goes out onto the podcast. You can follow the You can type the Joe Mobley show or just even Joe Mobley at this point because my SEO strategies are working. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find it. And when I get booted off of those servers, you can go straight to the source, thejoemobleyshow.com and click on the listen tab. While you're there, come on, guys. I know you love the shirts. You, you love the uncloseted conservative shirts. And right now, I'm sure people are buying my one-star, would-not-recommend Joe Biden shirt. This is where you can get it. Go on the website, look at the pop-up, fill out the form, and you get 20% off. Ken, thanks for I forgot to take you off the screen again, brother. Thanks for sitting through these shameless ads. Uh, and thanks. I look forward to speaking to you again. I think that you you just educated us a lot about what's going on uh, with criminal justice reform, bail reform, all of these things that it's called. And I look forward to having you again. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Joe Mobley Show. Remember to subscribe and make sure you don't miss out on future content. 
You can always show your support by leaving a review or making a financial contribution by going to thejoemobleyshow.com and hitting support the show. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If that was the first prayer you've ever prayed, I hope it won't be the last. Until next time, this is The Joe Mobley Show.